Golazo. I like to practice them. So let's practice Tonglen. There's various ways of doing it. Good practice. Let's do that. Let every entrance into the meditation be welcoming, breathing out, letting awareness descend into the body, filling the body as you settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. Calm the mind and soothe the body by attending for a little while to the in and out flow of the breath.
in the Buddha's own teachings and in the writings of so many others later. There are references to samsara as an ocean of suffering. It's not pessimistic. It's simply an acknowledgement that there is an enormous amount of suffering in the world. William James reminds us for the moment what we attend to is reality. For the moment, let's attend to the reality of those around us who are suffering. Still so much residual suffering in Haiti, but only one hot spot. Let us each now have our own individual and unique meditation. Let your attention rove. It could be to a single individual that you know, a personal friend, a loved one, an acquaintance. Who's going for a very difficult time for health reasons, personal reasons, financial. There are so many ways we can suffer. Let's begin with an individual, someone you know well. Attend closely. Bring this person vividly to mind and all that you know about this person's situation being faced now that dominates this person's reality. suffering they experience, the fears they face. Imagine for a moment, for a little while, slipping over into this person's shoes, into this person's presence, situation. Imagine what this person is going through from a first-person perspective. Of course, it will be only an approximation, but better than nothing. Attend to this person's reality from this perspective, insofar as you can imagine slip back to your own perspective. And let this person vividly once more arise in the space of your mind, attending not only to the appearance, this is not simply a cognitive exercise, but let's, let this appearance of this person enable you to direct your attention to the person, him or herself. 
the real person here and now, undergoing such a difficult time. As you breathe in, arouse the ever-so-natural response. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Whatever troubles this person, be it physical, psychological, whatever it may be, imagine this difficulty, this dukkha, this suffering, like a shroud, like a veil of darkness. With each in-breath, as you arouse this yearning, may you be free. Imagine drawing this darkness in, as if you were decloaking the person, removing the shroud, siphoning it in, drawing it into the luminosity, the light of your own heart, and let it be extinguished there without trace. Each in-breath, imagine this burden of suffering lightening, knowing full well this is your imagination, but let your imagination play. Imagine the darkness lifting, the suffering diminishing. Imagine the darkness dissipating completely and imagine the relief, the sheer relief of this person being free. The darkness drawn in and extinguished.
Let the appearance of this person dissolve back into the space of the mind. And bring to mind another individual, a loved one or simply an acquaintance, another type of difficulty. Attend closely. Let this person's reality become your reality by attending closely. Imagine being this person, experiencing this person's challenges and difficulties from the inside out. Slip back into your own perspective. And with this sense of common ground, as I suffer, so does this person suffer. That to which this person is vulnerable, so am I vulnerable. As I wish to be free of suffering, so does this other individual. Suffering has no owner. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning, may you be free of suffering and its causes. And breathe in. Breathe in the darkness of this person's woes. Draw them inwards and dissolve them without trace in your heart. No matter how great the suffering, your heart is large enough, it will consume them all. Imagine with each in-breath this person's difficulties gradually dissipating, fading out, 
the darkness vanishing. Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of your mind. And now let your attention rove, unleash it. It could be regions of the globe where there is great conflict, misery, and strife. It could be institutions such as the homes for the aged, hospitals, refugee camps. Unleash your awareness. Let it rove in the world. To these hot spots of suffering and prolonged misery, physical, mental, spiritual. like a bird that alights on a, on, a, on a branch when your attention comes to rest on a person, a community, a place. Attend closely. Shift your axis so you imagine being in the midst of those people or communities that you've been attending to. Be amongst them. Imagine. Sit back, slip back to your own perspective. And as you've done before with each in-breath, arouse this yearning. May you all be free of the suffering and its underlying causes. Breathe in the darkness of the suffering and its causes and extinguish this darkness in the light of your heart. Imagine the darkness vanishing. The sorrow, the pain, the fear 
turning into a memory. Let these communities, these regions of the globes, the appearances dissolve back into the space of the mind. And now in your mind's eye, attend to every person in this room. Each of us undoubtedly coming with our own hopes, our desires, our aspirations a longing for a better life. Certainly this must be true. With each out-breath, breathe out the light of loving-kindness, the yearning, the aspiration. May you, like myself, find the happiness, the fulfillment that you seek, that is your heart's desire, every out-breath, breathe out this light of loving-kindness. May you, like myself, find happiness and the causes of happiness. Fill the room with light. From this inexhaustible source, let this field of light expand beyond this room to every staff member here working with the same aspiration, each one finding to find greater happiness, greater sense of well-being and fulfillment. All those people, some 80 people or so, who have come here for two months, with what motivation could it be other than the yearning for greater meaning, greater fulfillment and happiness? greater serenity and peace. Breathe out. Fill the whole valley. And all of the non-human creatures, the birds, the mammals, and so on, each one wishing for happiness, wishing to be safe, with every outbreath. May be all, may we all be well and happy.
So in the practice of Tonglen, it's good to take it step by step, not feeling, not feeling that it's rushed or hurried. So sometimes just focusing on the breathing out. Sometimes just on the breathing in. Then when you, like relating a bicycle, when you can pedal on the left and the right without having to be thrown out of balance, then you might, might find it's not so difficult to breathe out, breathe in, and even in one cycle, be cultivating the loving kindness as you breathe out, the compassion as you're breathing in. Two sides of the same coin. The enormity of this is the cultivation of something immeasurable. It's exactly what it's called. The four sublime states, divine abidings, one translation, one term, another term from the Pali and Sanskrit, literally translated as immeasurable. It's an extraordinarily uplifting notion. We don't find much in the modernity. But in fact, we actually have that capacity, not only to love our own species, our own clan, our own group, and then set up the boundaries between all those people we don't love that might be harming the people we do love, but the very notion that we have the capacity for the, what's the term? Well, barriers, that's the word, going back to Buddha Gosa. That the barriers may be all broken down. That there's nothing intrinsic, nothing indelibly imprinted upon the human spirit, the mind or consciousness, that says you are simply made in such a way that you cannot feel empathy or loving kindness or compassion for this group. There's nothing there. The barriers are imposed by the mind and they can be broken down by the mind. And so that the, like an alluvial plane, the sense of caring, the sense of loving kindness and compassion can actually flow out without barrier, without imbalance, and become, in that way, immeasurable. I think back to a, uh, it wasn't even a conversation, it was just a phrase by one teacher of mine when I was a monk in Dharamsala, India. And this lovely man, really truly a, gen, a, a, a such a, a kind-hearted man, wonderful scholar, outstanding teacher. His name was Gen Losen Gatso. He was the abbot of our monastery. And just truly a sweetheart, a really good teacher too. But he raised this very simple question, very much a Buddhist question, since the phrasing itself, all sentient beings, all sentient beings, comes up so much in Buddhism. And the notion of feeling loving kindness, compassion, or even bodhicitta for all sentient beings. Now bear in mind the Buddhist worldview is no less, how do you say, no smaller than that of modern cosmology, with 100 billion stars, give or take, in this galaxy, and 50 to 100 billion galaxies, 50 to 100 billion galaxies. Buddha's worldview is no smaller than that. And moreover, a lot of those galaxies, a lot of those stars have planets, and so the number of sentient beings, oh, just beyond comprehension. So the notion of all sentient beings, I mean, how large does the mind really need to get to realistically say, for the sake of all sentient beings, we really need to visualize 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars, maybe even a trillion, each one. And it seems like they're probably going to be populated. Is that where we need to go? Or are we just going to airy fairyland there, going into complete abstraction? And Gen Losangatsu answered that question, or he addressed the question in the following way. He said, all sentient beings, what does it mean to develop loving kindness for all sentient beings? And then he answered it. He said, all sentient beings? That's everybody you encounter today. Now, encounter physically, you see somebody, but also somebody comes to mind. 
that may be living 5,000 miles away or maybe you only knew them 10 years ago. Still there, present in your awareness, every individual that comes into your sphere, your domain of experience, and not leaving out anybody. If you don't leave out anybody, that's all sentient beings. Tomorrow's all sentient beings will be a bit different. And the next day's sentient beings. But if you're not leaving out anybody, that's all sentient beings. So if you feel we've been splashing around in the shallow end of the pool for the last couple of days, I thought I might raise something quite deep. And that is, what kind of a universe is this anyway? I mean, we got a little while to figure it out. And either we'll have an awful long time or a very short time, depending on what happens at death. But here it is right now, we actually have an opportunity to make some strides, you know, to raise the question and maybe actually learn something. What type of a universe is this anyway? And from a materialistic perspective, it's a great big machine, maybe a quantum machine or a deterministic machine, but it's a bunch of physical moving parts and none of them care about what's happening to us here. That's it. And so lots of luck here, but it's, it's a tough place, a great big mindless machine. And we have that vision on the one hand, you know, natural selection, genetic mutation, but really no one cares. Really, there's just no one out there that cares. I mean, your friends, yeah, but besides that, it's just a great big empty or place. And when we look in the Buddhist worldview in this regard, it doesn't look all that much different. It's not just only boiling down to atoms, but in a way, who cares? It's samsara. It's just cause and effect arising and arising and arising. Samsara, this ocean of misery, conditioned by mental affliction, by karma, conditioning how we're reborn from one life to another. So it looks like a pretty scary place, a pretty, if not hostile, at least absolutely and utterly indifferent and so we try to navigate through there, trying to find some happiness in avoiding suffering. That's one way of viewing the whole reality, and I think there must be some truth to it. And the way it really strikes me as having a lot of truth, a lot of truth, that is, clearly we can count on our friends and other people, and occasionally there's these random acts of kindness. Don't count on it, but it can happen occasionally. Um, from the perspective, here's my take on it. So you can throw out anything I see, of course, at any time. But insofar as the whole orientation of, let's say, just taking this person as one example, no big deal, nothing special, but taking this person as an example, insofar as the whole orientation of my life is the hunter-gatherer approach. And that is, I sure hope I'm lucky, because I want to find a person, as in a spouse, I've been married for 20 years, but I hope I find someone that will really be just a loving and meaningful and mutually trusting and affectionate relationship all the way through and turn out to be a really satisfying, happy, meaningful marriage. I hope I find the right person. In my case, I happen to be very fortunate. I hope I also get really good health and get good employment, don't have financial anxiety, and so basically oriented towards hedonic pleasure, hedonic well-being. I don't see that the universe is really helping us out a whole lot here. That is, what, half of marriages dissolve into divorce and so forth. People strive diligently. I know one person, two of the best degrees from university you can possibly get anywhere in the world, just one disaster after another. Never made it financially, not a happy person, pretty grumpy, pretty resentful, and, you know, and yet good health, very smart, obviously. But just nothing ever worked out. And but this person, not a, you know, not a slacker, worked really hard. But he's never turned out well. And other people just go down the slippery slope and get, you know, luck out. 
just fantastic. Just dumps, you know, bouquets of rainbows on their, on their laps. And, wow, yabba, yabba dabba do, you know. So, and they weren't, there's nothing special about them. They weren't even very bright. Maybe they were just born in the right place. They just got flat out lucky. And so it seems pretty helter-skelter kind of pinball machine type of reality in terms of hedonic pleasure. That there's just, what can you really count on? And even if you get it, what makes you think you're going to keep it? So from the orientation of hedonic pleasure, I think this is just samsara. And qualitatively, apart from the you know, pure materialistic reduction, reductionist aspect to it, whether it's a materialistic perspective or the Buddhist, it's a tough place. It's a tough place. And that's why, from the Buddhist side, there's such a strong impetus, such a strong emphasis on getting out of samsara, right? Because it's an ocean. Is that, but the question that I raise, and of course, I'm not the first one, is that all there is to it? Is there anything in the very nature of reality that is not just flat out, ultimately, indifferent to our aspirations, our striving, our hopes, our prayers, perhaps, our loving kindness? Our loving kindness. That I mean, after all, why not just call it a prayer? If you direct your attention to Haiti or to, to, you know, Palestine and Israel or so many other areas where there's misery, and just direct your thoughts of loving kindness there, why not call it a prayer? You don't have to ask somebody else, you know, somebody else out there, the great manipulator. But as we're doing that, does it really have any impact at all? Does it mean anything apart from clearly transforming our own hearts? So I think these are deep waters. And always, in my own personal predilection is I just want to move beyond the realm of belief. I have a lot of beliefs. Everybody does. But I'd like to move beyond belief to knowledge. Is there any way to put this to the test of experience? From the hedonic perspective, a hypothesis is that there are just many factors beyond our control. And reality doesn't rise up to help us be rich. Earthquakes just happen everywhere, anywhere, even in Haiti. What an odd place to have an earthquake. I mean, it's really, what, 250 years since they've had one. It's really weird. And so in terms of natural calamities and ill health and good health and so forth, doesn't seem to be any relationship between what we're bringing to the world and just this stuff. And that's what the Buddhist tradition says. Yeah, it's called karma. It's past life events, activities ripening here. Rotten things happen to good people. Wonderful things happen to scoundrels. And there we are. And is that all there is to it? Within this spectrum, with this whole orientation of hedonic pleasure, it seems to be the case. So from a purely, let's say, absolutely secular perspective, you say, well, rotten luck or good luck. Buddhist perspective, good karma, bad karma. But really, you know, where's the real difference? Where's the cash value difference in this lifetime? You know? So I don't really see much, frankly. But now let's just put on another perspective. And it's one of those gradients. It's not a binary. Insofar as we, like iron filings, line up our set of priorities, our aspirations, our values, for our own and others' genuine happiness, which then is not directly contingent upon being lucky or having good karma ripen. Again, it's not so much what comes to you from the world, but what you're bringing to the world, which is much more like an investment rather than a lottery. Insofar as a life becomes utterly oriented around that pursuit of genuine happiness, is the world, the objective world, that which is around us, 
is it still equally indifferent? That is, even to say that sounds silly. No one there. Nada. Is that that case, or is there anything more going on? There is a whole genre of practice, most explicitly and I think richly presented in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition within Buddhism, called lojong, lojong. And it literally means, actually it literally means attitudinal transformation, because lo means an attitude and jong means to transform, to purify. It's shifting the axis, shifting the orientation, shifting the perspective, so that we look upon ostensibly the same phenomenon, but look at it from a different perspective. And I alluded to this briefly on Friday night, that something that looks like indelibly, intrinsically, and absolutely is adversity, seen from another perspective, may not be adversity at all. It's a matter of perspective. right? Even ill health, even the loss of a loved one, even a natural calamity, shifted and see, all right. So we become like a potter shaping the events, shifting the attitude, designating events in a different way, really crafting our own reality crafting our own reality within parameters of something that is reasonable, that is sensible, that is real, but recognizing we're not just presented with a monolithic, take it or live it kind of reality, that the way we perceive it and the way we apprehend it, designate it, actually shapes what is being experienced. And the whole central theme of such practice is to transform everything that takes place to us as the center of the mandala, the center of our own universe, each one being right in the center. You are in the center of yours, look in all directions, and there's only one person in the middle. You know? And that's true for everybody. From that, from that center, shifting the whole mandala by the way you shift perspective, attitude, designation, labeling, and all of that, and molding the reality you're experiencing from moment to moment such that whatever takes place, it's like you develop a... a gargantuan digestive system that whatever comes up you just digest it and assimilate it and then let it nurture, nourish you and nurture you and that's the core theme of Lojong that whatever comes up felicity, adversity, good times bad times, good health, bad health harmonious relationships, completely fractious relationships whatever comes up to be so hmm, wise, that one sees how to view it in such a way that is nurturing oneself and those around one, nurturing one's own genuine happiness, one's wisdom, one's compassion, maturing spiritually, whatever comes up. In other words, devouring all of life, not going like a little two-year-old, don't like peas, don't like broccoli, Mm, mm, mm. Don't like weather. I don't like rain. I don't like. Mm, I don't like this. I don't like Republicans. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I love Republicans. Not all of their policies, but I love Republicans. Like the Dalai Lama said of George Bush, he's my friend. I love him. <laughs> Not that crazy about his policies, but good man, good man. I love him. So that is just really smart. Life is short. Why wait for the good times in order before you can practice Dharma? But is it anything more than smart, a really good psychological tool chest to transform whatever comes up, to use the old cliches, lemon into lemonade and all that kind of business? Is it anything more than that? In other words, simply a subjective ploy. That I'm going to be really smart here and I'm going to, let's not trivialize it quite down to see the bright side of everything because it's not that trivial. But it is really shifting so that everything can be taken in and lead to one's ongoing spiritual maturation. 
is any, anything more than a psychological technique, simply shifting a subjective experience. And is there anything that is objectively rising up to meet us? And this is where already in the Pali Canon there's some intimation of it, and then it's full-blown. It's like the, the dam breaks and it's really coming out big time in the Mahayana. That if the Buddha's consciousness did not simply terminate at death, even though that was his last incarnation as a sentient being, if there's any continuity to such enlightened awareness, and now we really move into Mahayana territory, are they good for anything? Is a dead Buddha good for anything? Put it that way. A living Buddha, you betcha, they teach, they do all kinds of wonderful things. But what's a dead Buddha good for? Really practical, right? I mean, frankly, if we really, you know, just look, if you like, I mean, some people might here might actually be interested in Buddhism. Let's do a little bit of Buddhism. The notion that the Buddha practiced and practiced for eons and eons, this, this bodhisattva, for eons until finally whew, that grand culmination came, coming from Tushita, coming to this embodiment, hitting age 29, practicing for six, six years. Gosh, I've been practicing for 40. What's, <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> you know? But in any case, he for six years, he had a better preparation, I think. And then 30, age 35, the grand culmination enlightened. And, and then for 45 years, one can say, that sounds like a hiccup. I mean, a really nice hiccup. But countless lifetimes, eons of lifetimes, and then 40 years, shebang, and then <laughs> light goes out. The Mayana says, well, no, that was just the, the beginning. Is it true? And can this be anything other than simply a sermon? And by sermon, I mean a religious shtick. Believe me, I speak with such a good voice or some kind of crap like that. Is it anything more? Can we approach this in any way other than just believe it or don't believe it? Are you religious? Are you believer or non-believer in that kind of business? Because frankly, I just find that tedious and boring. And I think it can turn into an experiment. Not a rigorous and quantitative one. But let's go back to the gradient. Insofar as just the whole orientation of my priorities shifts. And the highest priority, let's just say bodhicitta, if you don't mind a little bit of Mahayana coming in here. This core, utterly core, essential aspiration might achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings without exception. And stemming from loving kindness, from compassion. It's okay, there's where I stand. There's where I stand. That's it. All other desires, all other aspirations, they may have a lot of value, but they're all secondary. They're all derivative, tertiary, and so forth and so on. Here's the core. Here's where I stand. This is it. Ask me the meaning of my life to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Let's imagine. And it's real. You wake up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you navigate through the day, and this is the core, this is the thread that carries, holds it all together. And there are all other desires of having harmonious relationships, having a decent job, and all of that taking care of your health, family, and all of that, all of those have their place. And there's a certain hierarchy to them, <coughs> trivial desires way down at the bottom, more and more meaningful desires, and then the core desire, the central, bodhicitta, the heart of enlightenment. Bodhi, enlightenment, awakening, chitta, heart, mind. Insofar as we align the whole course of a life, the priorities, the values, the activities around that. So it's not that is the hedonic, it's just out there, you know, as a support. It's the chorus, it's the choir. It's not the lead. 
does reality rise up to meet us? Or is it just our imagination? Does reality rise up to meet us in a way that nurtures and supports that desire? Facilitates it. Is a dead Buddha good for anything? Are all the dead Buddhas good for anything? Their consciousness, their compassion, their prayers, their aspirations. Do they rise up to meet us and facilitate and support and nurture that desire? Maybe not to get rich, maybe not to have every day of good health, maybe not to have a long life, and so on. But does reality rise up to meet that desire? <coughs> I'll tell you a story. It's just a story. I was 20. I'd been raised with a question, but just couldn't buy the worldview. Didn't make any sense to me. Educated a scientist, but science by, it by itself struck me as absolutely barren in terms of any meaning, any juice, any reason to live. So, and those are the two big options I had, Christianity or science. And I thought, there's got to be something else or I'm out of here. And so I was wandering around, hitchhiking around Europe when I was 20, and really yearning for greater meaning, for greater insight, something that would have all the rigor, the integrity, the intelligence, the critical aspect of science, but with the warmth, the heart, the meaning of religion. Came across a book on the nature of awareness from Tibetan Buddhism. Didn't understand much of it at all, but it really resonated. I really could hardly understand anything. It was really tough. It was one of Evans Wentz's books, Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. Very cool and pretty much incomprehensible. <laughs> but I just felt there's something there, and I was reading that, and it just was it's kind of like, like a deep vibration. It's, this is really something. There's something there. I don't know what it is, but there's something there. I meandered around Europe, but this, this crescendo of a yearning was arising that um, read a lot of books. I knew I'd read a lot more books, but I thought, as I was coming to the end of this hitchhiking trip before matriculating in the university in Germany, So it's almost like a, just a crescendo coming up. Uh, I've really got to meet a wise old man. That was my archetype. A wise old man. Somebody's got to give me some guidance here. Because I know what I don't want, and that's an awful lot. <laughs> and I need to have some direction on what I do want. Somebody give me some guidance here. hitchhiking around Europe with my roommate from college. We got off to Bergen on the west coast of Norway. And he was taken off. He was going to Scotland. I was heading back south to Germany. Been a good trip. A couple of months we hitchhiked around. And we bid farewell. He headed off to Scotland. I was on my own. And I wrote in my, I wrote in my journal that day, I just wrote it down. This is, this is it. I've got to meet a wise old man. I need some guidance here. I need some direction. I want somebody to come into my life that's going to give me something, a, a lead. And I wrote it down. That was the night before. The next morning, my roommate took off. And for the first time for the whole summer, I was hitchhiking on my own on this long road between Bergen and Oslo. It goes through the wilderness. There's almost, almost nothing in between. It's a long road. Somebody dropped me off in the middle of the wilderness, literally, took off on a side road. So I had my, hand, my thumb out for four or five hours. Nobody picked me up. Apparently some hitchhikers had robbed somebody near there. 
So I had my big backpack, my guitar with me, thumb out, no go. So I gave up. I gave up. I said, okay, go back to the nearest train station. Try to take a train out of here, find a better place to hitch. So I was walking against the flow of traffic. But since it didn't cost anything, I let my thumb dangle you know, against the traffic. So that's a really half-hearted thumb as I was marching back to the nearest train station. And then something kind of odd happened. I saw this little black VW bug pull over to the side of the road. And I was so, my mind was so disengaged from that digit, set of digits, I didn't even know why he stopped. <laughs> but there was this little guy, he looked kind of like a large hobbit, <laughs> bald, round, a little bit fuzzy. And he kind of looked at me like, hmm, like that. And then, oh yeah, I was hitchhiking, high thumb. And so, sure, why not? Sure, somebody picked me up. Fancy that. I was walking against the traffic. And so I got into his bug, threw my big Kelty backpack and my guitar in the back seat, so there was no room for my, my roommate anyway, got into the passenger seat. He drove me for about 10 minutes, which is worth totally nothing on a 200-mile road. Like, why did you bother? Because he was heading up to his, his little cottage way up in the mountains, so it was really worth nothing. In 10 minutes, I learned that he was a Buddhist monk who lived in Nepal with Tibetans. He learned that I was, had picked up a book on Tibetan Buddhism that I really resonated with. And it's just like electricity. And he was a wise old man. <laughs> and the conversation just got so rich and warm and deep so quickly, neither one of us wanted to stop. So when it was time for him to turn off, rather than his just dropping me like a brick and heading off to his chalet, where he was an artist up there. So he, during the winter, it turned out, he would spend his whole winter going around Europe and teaching about Buddhism and Indian culture, Indian heritage, Indian wisdom traditions. And in the summer, he'd head back to the chalet in Norway, where he was an artist. And he was one of the most courageous people I've ever met. This is kind of off the topic of the four measurables, but maybe it's not a waste of time. It's not really off the topic. But he's one of the most courageous people I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, it wasn't how he manifested to me, like, so bold and courageous. What he'd done with his life is really memorable. Because he'd been a young man in the Second World War, and he was born in Germany. He was a vegetarian, and he was a pacifist in the 1930s. Very sympathetic to Buddhism, didn't know much about it. And he was drafted into the German army. And he knew that this was simply not a way he could live even one day of his life. But if he didn't want to be drafted, he had the option of being killed. There were not a whole lot of different options back then. And so he was drafted. He was posted in, to Norway, where he was part of the occupying force, of course. He got up to Norway, and very rapidly he joined the Norwegian resistance against the Nazis. Now talk about brass cojones. <laughs> <laughs> so he was working against the Nazis working with the Norwegian underground. Now, when he had been a teenager, he'd actually li lived in Sweden for some time. It's not irrelevant. Well, his particular cadre, that little group of resistance fighters, of which he as a German was part of them, they were discovered. The Gestapo learned about them. And they had maybe hours before the fist came down and the torture would begin. He managed to escape, ran off into the forest, and managed to get to the Swedish border. Now, Sweden, of course, was neutral. And the Swedes wouldn't let anybody in, 
because they wanted to keep neutral and not have Germany gobble them up like they gobbled everybody else up in Europe. And so came this German guy from Norway asking for asylum in Sweden, which they wouldn't give normally under heaven or earth. Forget it. But he lived in Sweden. And because he lived in Sweden, they said, okay, come in. And he was safe. And he lived out the rest of the, of the war in Sweden. So when I say he's one of the most courageous people, can you imagine the courage that would take? It just blows my mind. So his name was Sugata, which means it's an epithet of the Buddha. And so we had, we, we stopped over. We stopped, he stopped the car. We both got out and had some ice cream or something together. And we talked on and on. Until we'd spoken enough. And then I continued my hitchhiking, made my way back to Germany. But in that short, maybe half an hour conversation, he gave me exactly the guidance and the directive I needed. Exactly. I needed nothing more, nothing less at that time. And then just one thing opened, after, opened up after another. First Göttingen, and then in Switzerland, and then in India, and then and just opening, 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 opening. That's just an experience. But having looked back on that almost 40 years, almost exactly 40 years ago, the yearning was authentic. Nothing phony about it. And it was for genuine happiness. It wasn't all the other stuff. I'd been there and done that. And just when I needed, on the day that I needed it, this person appeared. And it recurred in my life years after that, even 20 years later when I was living in Half Moon Bay. He came and visited my wife and me there and connected again as an old, old friend. Now, of course, if that happens only once, you can say, well, lucky you. But these aphorisms ring throughout centuries of history. When the disciples ready, the guru appears, and so on and so on. I looked at that, and it wasn't just one episode in my life. It wasn't just one. It was going to the University of Göttingen, now with a passion, because this man had given me the direction, go for it. If Tibet rings your bell, follow that bell. There was a Tibetan Lama at the university there, and I became his only student. <coughs> and he was appointed by the Dalai Lama. And then Switzerland opened up. And then India opened up. And one thing after another, wow, lucky, 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 lucky. Except for this doesn't make any sense anymore. I didn't get rich. I had a lot of health problems, terrible health problems. And conflict with my father, a Baptist theologian, that was kind of tough. <laughs> he wasn't singing and dancing about all of this, you know. So not an easy life. But in terms of so hedonic, well, a lot of up and down like everybody else. Up and down, really down, a little bit up. But for the genuine, it was just like being blindfolded and stepping across a river and finding a stone rising up wherever your foot is about to come down. That's my experience. I don't think it's random, but it's persuaded me on the basis of experience that insofar as a life becomes oriented towards dharma, reality rises up to meet you. It's an empirical issue. It's an experiential issue. But it can't be put to the test by people who aren't practicing dharma. Because then you're back to the crapshoot of samsara. <laughs> but insofar as it's towards dharma, the world winds up appearing to be a very different place. Loving kindness. You have a little bit of left time. Okay. But I think it does change everything, doesn't it? 
if this is true. And again, just to say, well, this must be true because Buddha said so, or it's in the Bible, or what have you, that's just, I don't know, okay. But if it can be turned into something experiential, where one is posing this question day after day, moment after moment, posing the question to reality, and then listening for the answer. And you can think of it as a person if you like. You can think of it as reality if you like. You can think of it as dharmakaya, non-depressant consciousness. However, but it's the experience that counts. Does reality rise up to meet you in your quest for liberation, for enlightenment? I'm convinced it does, and it changes everything. It really does. It changes everything. A brief flyby for the four measurables. Loving kindness. It starts with loving kindness. Good place to start. A lot of people will start there and say, that's enough. Those other three immeasurables, whatever they were, I'm sure they're fine, but loving kindness, loving kindness. If you're going to do only one, if you're going to focus only on one, loving kindness is a really good place to start and then just cultivate that field. And loving kindness in the Buddhist understanding, so I'll just say that once and the rest you'll know. I'm speaking from a Buddhist perspective. Loving kindness, since nobody has, again, a monopoly on how to define terms, metta, or maitri in Sanskrit, loving kindness, good translation, is not a feeling and it's not an emotion. It is an aspiration. It's a yearning. Directed towards oneself, it is this heartfelt yearning, may I flourish. And that includes having enough to eat and having sufficient clothing and so forth. But it looks beyond that. Loving kindness is visionary. It's not trapped in the world of actuality. It's attentive to and nurtures and cultivates the world of potentiality, the world of possibility. We see what is true and then we imagine what could be true and we make what could be true as true as we can. You've got to be a visionary to have loving kindness. You can't just look at the facts and only the facts. It's an aspiration. May we find happiness in the causes of happiness. It's directed inwards, overcoming all inclinations for self-loathing, self-contempt, low self-esteem and all of that. It's the great salve, the great balm, and in fact the great cure for this what ails modernity so much. So much misery comes out of that. And this just heals it all. A loving and affectionate, caring attitude for oneself which doesn't prevent one from bridling and turning the glary stare at the mental afflictions that arise in the mind. We don't have to befriend them. They're not me. They're not you. Any more than we have to befriend TB or, or smallpox or HIV virus or polio. We don't befriend them. They're diseases. And so are the, me- the mental afflictions, diseases, toxins of the mind. Embrace ourselves. Protect ourselves from mental afflictions. That's loving kindness. It's an aspiration. Compassion. Compassion does attend closely to the world of actuality. Otherwise, compassion doesn't arise. We're not attending to individuals who might possibly one day suffer. But people, individuals, human beings, animals, and so on, who are experiencing suffering, who are vulnerable to suffering, attending closely, embracing ourselves within that same context, I'm one of them, I'm, I'm one of us, attending to sentient beings, who are suffering. With the awareness, at least the working hypothesis, we are not simply and indelibly created to suffer. The suffering is an appendage that can be thrown off. Attending to the reality arouses, arouses sympathy, arouses empathy, the feeling with. So in the, the kindling of compassion, 
is there. This is empathy. And it has a sad taste. When you try to take in the magnitude of what is it, a million people homeless in Haiti right now, and wondering where their relatives are buried, and wondering whether they even have enough to eat today, how can one attend to that? <coughs> and not feel sadness. It's the realistic response. The heart is being shared. This we can call empathy. We can call it sympathy, which is a feeling with. It's heavy, it's dark, it's sad. But it's not compassion. Feeling sorry for someone is not compassion. Any more than feeling sorry for oneself is compassion. It's just feeling sorry. If we don't feel sorrow for others, if we don't feel the empathy, how could compassion ever arise as anything other than an intellectual exercise or some empty philanthropic gesture? But out of the kindling of empathy, there arises the flame of compassion. And it's moving beyond the feeling sorry for which is very important as kindling. But then the flame ignites. And the flame ignites is compassion, and compassion, once again, is an aspiration. It's a yearning. It's a passion. May you be free. May you be free. So I was with a scientific team back in 1992. Some really good scientists, Richard Davidson, Francisco Varela, Greg Simpson, Cliff Sarinth, four really good neuroscientists. And we were doing a short study, and one major thing we were studying was compassion. And there was this old yogi on the hill. He was absolutely splendid. He blew these scientists away. He just walked with grace. His, his, his smile just light up an auditorium. These, guys, these scientists loved him. What was not to love? And he'd been practicing up there for 35 years or so. And he would come out periodically and go back into his retreat and just cultivating compassion, compassion, compassion. And one of the scientists, I can't remember who it was, or it might even be me, be me, I don't care who it was, but somebody asked this fellow, who was like a Nobel laureate in compassion. I mean, this guy, just em- he, he just emitted. You just sit with him, you start feeling happy. you know, So loving and caring and warm. And this great big smile. How do you get a smile like that? What kind of plastic surgery do I need? <laughs> they asked him, when you're actually experiencing compassion, are you sad? And this man had been focusing on this as a central feature of his whole life for decades. So he should know what he's talking about. When you actually experience compassion for an individual, for sentient beings at large, do you feel sad? He said, no. You feel sadness first and compassion comes next. And the compassion is moving into the realm of possibility. Yes, there is the suffering now, but what could be done? What could be done? On the news just about, oh, just a few days ago, I saw one fellow was interviewed in in Haiti. He was a Haitian. And the work he was doing just made my heart sing. Just his whole demeanor, his presence, the tone of his voice. Oh, it was fantastic. I thought, oh, if there can only be more people like that. Because he was there on the ground. He was doing such fantastic work in his local reality. And I thought, whoa, there's really hope. There's really hope. He was dealing with the realm of potentiality, possibility, and making it real. He, was, he did not look sad. He's living there. That's his home. Demolished. How many of his loved ones died? He didn't look sad at all. There was a courage there, a confidence, a strength, and just sheer compassion flowing through his veins. It was really awesome. 
I just, I just started smiling and smiling. Oh, there it is. So there's a courage in compassion that's not necessarily there in feeling sorry. There's a vision, a strength. <coughs> compassion is not a feeling or an emotion, it's an aspiration. <coughs> the third one we easily overlook, and yet it may be one, it's certainly enormously important and maybe especially important for our era, our era. Because there's something distinctive, so many distinctive things about modernity, but one of them is we have an, even now, during my lifetime, from 1950 till now, it's just a growing, how do you say, accessibility, access to the misery, the anguish, and the evil of the world. You know, only a century or two ago, you could not know anything about the world further than 10 miles away, and spend 70 years, 10 miles is your complete radius, and that was not uncommon, right? Even in Europe let alone Brazil or Tibet or Thailand or what have you, the more rural and traditional cultures. And so the amount of evil and suffering in the world that you would, you would be, have access to, you could even imagine your all-sentient beings will be within 10, 10, you know, 100 square miles. And here we are, CNN 24-7, misery 24 hours a day. Because <laughs> what, maybe 95% is all bad, right? Give or take. And then the evening news, you get your 22 minutes, you get hammered with a fistful of misery and evil and suffering, and then you get the little cocker spaniel at the end to make your day. <laughs> Aren't they cute? You know? Some little human interest story to you know, lighten it up a little bit, and so they can sell the next product as soon as the puppy is gone. The advertising industry. So this is, I mean, this is an experiment on the human psyche that's never been done before. How much can we take? Year after year after year, Newspapers, internet, radio, television, everything that we're knowing about the world, it's massively negative. It's overwhelmingly negative. And then when you get, want some respite, then you can watch the entertainment and see about terrorists and, and women who murder their children. And that's how we entertain ourselves. When we're tired of reality, then we go to entertainment that is about 95% god-awful, <laughs> right? Except for the kids' program, we're warming them up. You know, we're warming them up to enter the, the, the real world. So it's an experiment on the human psyche. How much exposure can we have to the misery and evil? Because it's not just natural calamities. It's just this sinister, evil stuff that we bring to the world. And it's just overwhelming at times. How much exposure can we have before we just crumple like a beer can under a steamroller? And we just go flat. We just, total apathy. So it's a weird experiment we're running on ourselves right now. And the overwhelming message from all the media is negative. There's not even a pretense for balance. Given that, since what we're being presented with is so massively imbalanced for a myriad of reasons, I'm sure most of them I don't even know, then this mudita, this empathetic joy, rises as maybe the only balm that will help us, that can really balance things out a little bit. And that is attending and deliberately attending, like a heat-seeking missile, directing attention to what is good in the world, where is there joy in the world, where is there virtue in the world, attending to it, making it real, and taking delight in it. We can't just kind of look 360 degrees and see what's up, because what's up is being what's being presented to us by the media and so forth, which is overwhelmingly negative. So not a whole lot of mudita there. Compassion, yes. Mudita, not a whole lot to rejoice in. But if we seek it out throughout the course of the day, seek it out in microcosms and macrocosms. This fellow that appeared 
on CNN, I think it was. Oh, man, that made my day. It took all of one minute, two minutes. But I thought, oh, hallelujah. There are people like that in the world. It was so good. Just unmitigated good. Oh, I want to be like you. Lifting the spirits, because that too is reality. Attending to it in history, attending throughout the world, and from day to day, moment to moment, in the course of just daily interactions. Almost like we got in it, we do, in the cultivation of mudita, empathetic joy, we've got an agenda. I don't have to look very hard. I don't have to seek out the misery and evil in the world, but I'm going to seek out and attend to the virtue, the goodness, the joy in the world. I'm going to attend to it. I'm going to saturate my mind, drench my mind in it, to balance out, to bring some levity here. And in this world where our self-contempt, self-loathing, this incredibly judgmental mind has become so endemic, I'll seek it out not only in the world around me, in the people around me, in the nations around me. Is there any good in this guy at all? You know, and I'm saying this guy could be any person, any person here. Is there anything good going on here? Or am I just a tabla rasa or a piece of big piece of crap? You know, is there anything good I'm bringing to the world, arising in my mind, my speech, my behavior? Anything to rejoice in at all? And I think we can all say yes, but we have to may have, may have to attend, not take it for granted. Oh, not say oh shucks, I didn't. You know, like it doesn't count. I think we very do that very easily. You know, but recognize virtue is virtue. It doesn't matter where it crops up. In a way, it has no owner, just like suffering. Virtue is virtue. It comes out of this person's mouth. Well, good, rejoice in it. If there's an act of kindness here, good, rejoice in it. And who did it belong to? Oh, cool, whatever. And back to attending to it. And it balances things out. It balances things out. It's an enormously important virtue altogether and so easily overlooked. And in our Western civilization, empathetic joy is not one of those phrases that crops up a lot outside of Buddhism. There's nothing antagonistic to Christianity and Judaism, but when do they ever talk about it? Love, yes. Compassion, yes. Faith, belief, and all of that. Obedience, ethic, you betcha. But you know, we're not getting a lot of spotlight on empathetic joy. And it may be one of the virtues we're most in need of to give us some hope and some joy in a world that has so many difficulties going on. And finally, upeksha. Upeksha, equanimity. This evenness, the equilibrium. And it does not mean simply a feeling of calm, equanimity. Ha. You know, the fool on the hill. That's not actually what it's referring to at all. Not among the four immeasurables. Among feelings, if we go there, just a little bit of Buddhist terminology, feelings, there's pleasure, pain, and upeksha. Upeksha is, it's okay. Not pleasure, not pain. Right in the middle, that's upeksha. That's the feeling of upeksha. No big deal. It comes, it goes. When we're speaking of upeksha, equanimity within the four measurables. It's not that at all. It's something very different. It's impartiality. But it's not impartiality in the sense of I equally don't care about anybody. <laughs> but totally equally. Immeasurable, don't care about anybody. Throughout the entire universe, I'm really completely even. <laughs> Dried up like a crisp. You know. It's not that, but it's rather the heart opens with empathy and then it just opens evenly in all directions. To your own child, the next-door neighbor, and the next-door neighbor's cousin, and it just flows out evenly, evenly. What the Christians call unconditional love, compassion. This is the unconditional aspect to it. And it's looking through the veneer. It's looking through the facade, the appearances, how we manifest in the world from day to day, sometimes in very agreeable ways and all too often not so agreeable. 
either because we're just grumpy or just sad or tired, or we're feeling gnarly, you know, selfish, irritable, aggressive, and what have you, agreeable and disagreeable, and looking through the appearances and recognizing wherever we're directing the attention to wherever it may be. I don't even need to give examples. People who are really manifesting a great deal of evil in the world, people manifesting wondrous virtue in the world, and looking through the manifestations to there's a sentient being like myself, wishing, for su- wishing to be free of suffering, to find happiness. And the person with that aspiration, with that aspiration, is encouraging children of his group to put on backpacks of bombs and blow themselves up. Because that, in the bigger picture, will really lead to good. That's the vision, right? It's too bad for the kid. But in the bigger picture, this will really turn out well, right? Like if we had no Jews in the world, wouldn't that be swell? There was one agenda. They tried that one out. And no, blah, 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 you know. But it's always got some vision there. This will be a good thing. So pack your kids with explosives, et cetera, et cetera, because it's going to be a good thing. And I can't resonate at all with packing children with explosives, so you know, it doesn't make me anything special. But I resonate with the underlying desire. These people want justice, they want harmony, they want happiness for themselves and all, they, all those they love. Oh, but so do I. So do I. The strategy is different. The motivation's the same. So Osama and Ben Laden and I, we're buddies on that level. Method very different. Dalai Lama, Gestapo headquarters, Osama, me, and so forth. Same. We're after the same thing. It's the little problem of delusion that creeps in and messes everything up. But the desire is the same. The experience of suffering is the same. The experience of joy is the same. And attending to that sameness. As you are, so am I. That wonderful phrase of Thich Nhat Hanh. Remember a long time ago? It was with Idi Amin, I think it was him, the man that would use children and so forth for target practice. Inconceivable. And so easy to think, oh, there's good and bad here. The people doing the torturing and then there's a tortured. And Thich Nhat Hanh comes in and said, I am the tortured and I am the torturer. Cutting right through. That's equanimity. That's equanimity. These four measurables, I would suggest, as you're engaging with the world, the world around you, other people, they're your four best friends. Four best friends. Meet any type of situation, and one or more of those will rise up and help you. They will be your best friend. No matter what, one of those four, at least, will be exactly what the doctor ordered to respond to, to nurture, to transform the whole situation into dharma. So they're really utterly inexpressible. So on that note, I'd like to bring this afternoon to a close. We have a couple of minutes, because I actually need to zip out of here to catch an airplane. So let's spend just two or three minutes, very comfortably. began in accordance with one Buddhist tradition that happens to be from Tibet, rooted in India, beginning with motivation, 
bringing forth the most meaningful motivation we could with this weekend. Now this weekend together is drawing to a close. It is certainly possible that during this time we've spent together, the practices, the discussions, there's some good here, something good. We may call it virtue, we may call it merit, something good, something of value. I invite you now once again to bring to mind your most meaningful aspirations for yourself, your loved ones, for those around you, far and near, short-term and long-term. And whatever good there is from this time we've spent together, our individual efforts and our collective time and activities, dedicate whatever is good from this weekend to the realization of your most meaningful aspirations for yourself and others. Let's bring this session to a close. Again, Ellen Wallace, thank you so much for being here all weekend. It's been wonderful. I know we've all very much appreciated your presence. Now go, catch your plane. <laughs>